Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us and help us grow closer to you and really not only comprehend but to live your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Today we're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, the, the book of Romans, and the title is Overcoming Evil with Good. Overcoming Evil with Good. First question, what is evil? How do you describe it? Satan. Satan. Okay, Satan is a name of a, of a, of a, of a being uh, that we attribute to you, but what is evil? Opposite of, good. opposite of good. That's actually one of the definitions. If you look it up on, on the internet and look up in dictionaries, what is evil? Well, opposite of good is one of the definitions. Depravity is another one. Immorality is another one. Malevolence is another one. But I, I heard um, an author speaking uh, who's done some research around the world, and, and he reported that in every society of the world, they've gone in and asked people in the society, what is evil? Every culture. And the consensus conclusion from every culture in the world is evil is exploiting another person for your selfish gains. Exploiting or hurting another to put yourself ahead. They all agree that's evil. You get, you get that. I don't have to give you examples, right? Do you agree that that's evil? Yes. That's selfishness. If exploiting and hurting another person for your own gain is evil, where did this idea, that idea of evil, come from? Where did the idea that that's evil come from? That that's not good? It's, that it's not good to exploit others? Where did the idea that it's not good come from? If, for instance, if there's no higher power, if we evolve from lower life forms, if it is a virtue and desirable to survive by killing those who would compete with us for food and water and shelter and reproductive outlets, then... Why does every culture in the world recognize that it's actually evil to do those things? If that's actually how life advances and, and survives. Thank you. Yes. You, you see, the, the evolutionary origins of, the, of life is a lie. Life was constructed by a benevolent God to operate on certain protocols, and deviations from those protocols are harmful, injurious, and every culture, non-Christian cultures of the world recognize, even the, the agnostics in the world, the atheists in the world, do not endorse what Adolf Hitler did. They protest against it, but based on what moral ground? Why is it wrong in their view? Well, it just is. It's wrong. It's wrong. To, yes, it is. But where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we were designed to love. We were not designed to exploit. So... How do we overcome evil with good? If evil is hurting others, taking advantage, exploiting others, how do we overcome that? Where must the warfare, the battle to overcome evil start? Humility. Yeah, but where must it start? Where is the place that you must start fighting the battle? In your, In your own hearts and minds. How many said, let's fight evil by looking inward? How many, when they, we're going to overcome evil, start with themselves? Or is it typically we find somebody more evil than us that we need to do something about? The Taliban, we need to do something about them. They're evil. What are we going to do? I know, we'll send the military over there to kill them. 
Can you eradicate hatred with hatred? No, it still leaves hate. It breeds more. Interesting. Memory texts, Romans 12, 2. So the question, how do we overcome evil with good in our own lives? Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's break this verse down into sections. First section, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What is the pattern of this world? Selfishness. Me first, survival of the fittest, selfishness, okay. Um, Would that be power over? Coercive pressure? Do it or else? That's the pattern of the world. What law system does the world operate on? What method do they use to bring so-called law and order? It's imposed, coercive, imperialistic. If we are not to conform ourselves after the pattern of the world, would this admonition then not also include that we don't bring into our church and teach in the church that God runs his universe after the pattern of the world? Even more so. And what happens to Christianity when we bring the pattern of the world into our theology and teach God governs his universe after the pattern of the world, which is exactly what the entire Christian world does. He makes up rules. I'm going to tell you right now, a young man, a student at Southern, came here this morning, has been teaching some of our ideas with friends over in a Bible study at Southern, and some of the faculty over there in the theology department are now giving some papers. And the papers they've given him, and he's going to have to have a meeting with them. Take the position that God, yes, he has design laws that we teach, but those are physical laws, like the laws of physics and the laws of health. But their position is his moral laws, however, are imposed rules that require him to police and punish people who break the rules. The pattern of the world. Can our minds be renewed, as we're told to do, if we teach the God's methods are patterned after the world? Well, Romans 1 And she'd say, why or why not? Why can can our minds be renewed if we teach a God who runs like the world runs? We can't. Why? Romans 1 says, they exchanged the truth of God for lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to obtain the knowledge of God. Their minds became dark and depraved and futile because of the law of worship. The law of worship is a design law. In psychiatry and psychology, it's called modeling. The Bible says, by beholding, we become changed. We actually become like the God we worship, neurobiologically, characterologically. So if we take the patterns of the world, put them in our theology, project them up onto heaven, teach that God runs his universe, he's got a big tribunal, judge, he's going to impose punishments, that's righteous, that's just, we become like that. We don't become like Christ. It says be transformed. Next statement, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is the mind renewed? Law of worship, by beholding. Bible tells us to fix our eyes on, on Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Can we renew our own minds by our own strength, our own ability, our own knowledge, our own efforts, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit? No. No, let's be clear about that. We can't do that through a force of will. Can we be renewed in our minds if we claim to trust and have faith in Jesus, but don't apply his directions and methods to our lives? This is the legal view. The human law view, that's exactly what they teach. We have faith in the legal payment of Jesus and we claim the righteous blood of Jesus as our payment in heaven and his righteous uh, character or or history stands for my history Uh, and and there's no application. 
it's not happening here. But then, if we do these things that we're supposed to, don't conform after the world, and therefore, since we don't conform after the world, and we had our mind renewed, then it says, then we are able to test and approve God's will. Are we sinful human beings supposed to test and approve of God's will? Isn't it blasphemous to think that we should be questioning and, and, and testing and approving of God's will? See, those who have the authoritarian God, yes. You know, he's Caesar. He's God. He's divine. He's sovereign. God said it. I believe that says it. We have no right to question his will. We have no right to approve of his will. Paul says, actually, when your mind's been renewed, then you're able to test and approve. Test may be more related to um, experiment with. Like, once I learn his way of doing things, then I try it out, taste and see that the Lord is I'm testing this to see if it's right. And lo and behold, a lot of people think Christianity is a, a crutch, a weakness. But I think it's a, a real strength looked at in the right way because you you can take the bullets of life and you don't have to pass them on to somebody else because you have taken it, but the that Christ works healing in you so that you don't turn around and pass it on to somebody else. And that's an extreme strength. That's exactly right. Test and approve. I teach the law of liberty. You guys know that law. Love can only exist in the atmosphere of freedom. You can't coerce people, threaten people, punish people to get them to love you. And so I teach my patients this law. And I say, test it. Test it. Go home and test it on, on your spouse. This is the test. And then approve. Approve. Make a, make a decision. Which way do you want your marriage to work? If you don't do what I want, I'm going to stomp. I'm going to cry. I'm going to curse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put pressure on you. Will love grow in that relationship? Present truth and love. If your partner doesn't do what you want, let them know you're going to love them just as much anyway. And see what happens in that relationship. This is test and approve. Exactly what you're saying. But that doesn't work in an imposed law construct. Test and approve your tax law. You're going to have property taxes here. It's going to be so many thousands of dollars. Do you approve of that? No, I'd rather have it lower. How many want lower property taxes? Okay, we don't approve of that at all. <laughs> but design laws, when you understand design laws, it becomes a, something we approve of. And it says, when we approve, so this is Romans 14 also, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Because only as you think it through, only as you understand it, only as you comprehend it, and then say, ah, I approve, I agree, that changes you. A person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Conformity because someone's got power over you, but you don't agree, doesn't change the inner workings of your mind or heart. The only way God can change the inner workings of our heart is through his methods, truth, presented in love leaving us free. We test it. We compare it. We agree. It can even go a little deeper than that in the sense that if a person is assenting to those things but not really accepting it in their heart, they can become just a sociopath who can do things that are, that are horrible and put them in another room and close the door yep. and leave it there until he wants to go there again. That's the legal way. Always have loopholes. Right. Romans 3, 4. God... God must be true even though every human being is a liar. For as the scripture says, you must be shown right when you speak and you must win your case when you're being tried. Who's, who's that speaking about? God. God must win his case with whom? 
us. That's why the three angels' message, fear God and glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in which he is to be judged by us, to be approved of, to be tested and approved. I judge you amazing, perfect, holy, righteous, good, and the only way of life. That's my judgment. And I trust you. One of Satan's traps for Christians is to get them to pursue a righteous goal by using Satan's methods. Do you think that couldn't happen? Righteous goal. Let's lead people to convert to Jesus Christ. The Crusades, for example. And we burn people at the stake who won't convert to Jesus Christ. The right, right goal, convert to Jesus Christ. Wrong method, coercion. And coercion comes in much subtler forms than burning people at the stake. No one can buy or sell, say him, who has the mark of the beast. That's coercion. That's, in modern terms, that's actually called economic sanctions. That's what that is. Economic sanctions, you can't buy or sell. Say you do it our way. Unless you mark yourselves as our friends, we're going to put economic sanctions on you. And the system of the world, political, geopolitical system, is going to be formed that will coerce people to do it the way they want through economic sanctions. Let, we don't have anything like that happening in the world today, do we? These are the ways of the world. God's ways, truth, love, freedom. So how do we eradicate evil with good? Here is a quote from one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventist Church out of um, Worker's Bulletin, September 9, 1902. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was a manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. And the temptation that led Adam to sin was Satan's declaration that it was possible for man to attain to something more than he already enjoyed, possible for him to be as God himself. The sowing of seeds of selfishness into the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against its terrible deceptive powers. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. What method do we hear being employed? Do you see the contrast? And this author said what all countries of the world have said, all the nationalities of the world. Evil is selfish exploitation of others. Selfishness. That's evil. And the gospel in the church is to combat evil by acts of love, benevolence, giving, compassion. So if you think about this, why would acts of love combat evil if somebody's evil and against you, how do acts of love? Do people actually want to destroy what they experience as being a benefit to themselves? Generally not. So when we are loving others, helping others, lifting others up, uh, promoting their welfare, generally that disarms the prejudices and the hostilities against us. But you might say, well, it... What? Except. Except what? Well, Jesus of Nazareth, okay. I mean, the, the, he was the, the complete embodiment of God. Except when the, when the evil is so embedded in the character and the heart hardened that the acts of benevolence and goodness are viewed as you're trying to make me look bad. You're trying to expose me. You're trying to take my power base and bring everybody to adore you instead of me. You don't really love me. You're trying to dethrone me. Okay, so yes, it can be interpreted in this way. Yes. 
But then they don't interpret that as acts of love. They interpret that as manipulation. But it is still love. You're right. It can be misinterpreted. That's part of the devil's deception. And that's the deception of selfishness. But you might say, okay, so we're going to love somebody. We're going to do acts of benevolence and kindness. And if they appreciate and value what we're doing for them, then they may not kill us. They may actually, uh, in fact, spend more time with us. But how is that then not more selfishness on their part because they're only hanging out with us because we're doing good for them? But sometimes, even if it's not your, even if you have selfish ways of looking at things, placing yourself in an atmosphere where the other attributes can be visible to you. I mean, in Judas's example, he had all kind of evidence of God's love and so on, and it didn't t- ultimately affect him too much. But most people, if you put them in a good atmosphere, they'll begin to absorb that and see it, and, and uh, you would hope would begin to emulate it. That's why sometimes if you'd rather than just leave a church setting or something and be out on your own, uh, why, even if you're not living your life well, being in an atmosphere where you have support of other people who are loving can, I think, have an influence for good. No, I, I think that's well stated, and I think that you're right. It can, and ideally it is supposed to. This is the method, truth, love, freedom, to win people's hearts. That's the method. So, yes, it can and does often, but not universally. And, in fact, in romantic relationships, I see this distorted over and over again in which people in a relationship that appears to be loving but in fact is not and many people get in these relationships and they're dysfunctional and they're destructive and they have a difficult time telling real love from manipulation because a person can value their partner for all that the partner does for them for this, not for the sake of the, the individual themselves. I don't love you for who you are. I love you for how you make my life better. I love you because you cook good. I love you because you do my laundry. I love you because you do the lawn. I love you because you get my car running. I love you because life's easier. I love you because you paycheck. You think I'm wrong about this? There's a lot of this. I love you for that. And, and therefore, I get very jealous if anybody tries to you know, flirt with you or come on to you and it looks like I love you. It's not love. Many people have a hard time dis- discerning this. And so I give this analogy with my patients that are struggling. The analogy of the relationship between a cowboy and his horse. The cowboy values his horse very much. Provides it the best food after a long run will get it rubbed down. Gets the best saddle, the best shoes. Keeps it in the best working condition. We'll be jealous if someone else decides to ride his horse. Or take his horse from him. Violently protect it. Yet he does all this because he actually loves the horse's aspirations and dreams and wants to promote the horse's actual welfare or because of what the horse does for him. It's all to serve him. Cowboy doesn't care where the horse wants to go. And will the cowboy sacrifice himself for his horse, or when the horse gets sick or breaks a leg, he'll put the horse down and get another? <laughs> Many people are in relationships like this. As long as you serve me well, you look good, you keep me, keep me happy, then we'll stay. But if you get broken, putting you down, getting another. That's not love. And this type of relationship, this type of so-called giving, does not eradicate evil because it's not good. It's evil masquerading as good. And that's the most difficult type of evil to see. It's not hard to see the evil of the serial killer or the child predator or the drug dealer or the Satanist worshiper. 
Those evils are easy to see. The difficult evil to see is the evil that masquerades as good, the Pharisees in Christ's day, promoting righteousness under the, uh, really evil under the guise of righteousness. If you want a book that really exposes human evil, I think it does it extremely well, but it's only for the mature. In fact, there's a warning in the introduction. It's only for the mature. It's called People of the Lie. People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. He wrote The, the, Way Less, the Road Less Traveled. He also wrote this book. The first, I, I value the first two-thirds of the book. The last third of the book, he gets into speculation about you know, demonic possession and stuff. And, and he has different views that I do about spirits and things like that. So I'm, I'm not quite on board with that. But the first two-thirds, he's just describing human evil that goes through society where most people say, that's good, that's good. And it's not. And he really does a masterful job. That's the worst evil to see. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. For starters, faith is not a substitute for obedience, as if faith somehow nullifies our obligation to obey the Lord. The moral precepts are still in force. They are explained, even amplified in the New Testament, and no indication is given either either that it will be easy for the Christian to regulate his or her life by these moral precepts. On the contrary, we're told that at times... It could be difficult, for the battle with self and with sin is always hard. Christians are promised divine power and given assurance that victory is possible, but we are still in the world of the enemy and will have to fight many battles against temptation. The good news is if we fail, if we fall, if we stumble, we are not cast away but have a high priest who intercedes in our behalf. First question, why is faith no substitute for obedience? Why? Because you can have faith in terrible things. You can have faith in terrible things. What does it mean the moral precepts are still in force? <laughs> Thank you. Brilliant. What law lens are you looking through? If you look through the human law construct, which many people do, when they read that, they read, well, God's rules, he has not changed his rules. He has not set them aside. He has not done away with them. Therefore, they're still in force. And... Um, and God still enforces his rules, and breaking them will result in criminal guilt punishable by God unless you get the legal action to get the penalty paid by Jesus. God still enforces his laws. He will not blink and wink. Even the smallest deviation he will punish. Just take the wrong fruit, you're, you're toast. Touch the wrong ark, boom, you're dead. God will enforce his rules. You better watch out. He's watching. Does that warm your heart? <laughs> It's all pagan. What I just said, it's all pagan. It's not Christian. That's right. That's the pagan view of God that has entered Christianity through the false law construct. So why do you think that he did strike people suddenly dead? Okay. Different question we're not going into today. Okay. Okay. So the, the, it's a straightforward answer. If you're asking what the fruit, he didn't strike anybody dead at the fruit. He expelled them from the garden so there wouldn't be eternal sinners, so they wouldn't have access to the tree of life. Think how wonderful the world would be if there actually was a tree of life on the earth today. With the, with the way people function on earth, if there was a tree of life, who do you think would control it? The good people? <laughs> and, and so would evil be diminished with a tree of life on earth, or would evil have won? Multiplied. Multiplied. So this casting out of the garden and removing the tree of life was not a punishment for sin. It was a protection to diminish the flow of evil in this world. Yet, many people who don't like the way we teach say, no, God punished them by throwing that body. Uh, with the case of uh, Uriah, okay, uh, Uzzah, excuse me, in the case of Uzzah touching the ark, this was simply theater. This was not punishment for sin. People who want to say this is punishment for sin always make this mistake, always. 
equate first death experience, which is asleep and from which everyone rises, with second death, eternal non-existence, which is the actual punishment for sin. Punishment for sin, you're gone from all history. First death experience, Daniel died. You're going to sleep in the grave. Daniel's not being punished for sin. Same death as Uzzah. They're the same. There's no difference in the two deaths. Well, God didn't kill Daniel. He killed Uzzah. He didn't kill Uzzah. He put Uzzah to sleep. He put Uzzah to, if you're going to use God's terminology and not put human terminology on it, he put Uzzah to sleep. Did he not? And why? And why did he do it? Because, because Israel is theater. The whole nation of Israel is theater. It's a drama. It's acting out reality. And what happens when an when a actor on Broadway goes off script and, and, and won't stay on script? What's the director do? Removes them from stage. Puts a new actor out there that'll stay on script. God removed many people from the script. At one time, he had the whole theater torn down, and for 70 years, they weren't acting out the script at all. For 70 years, nobody's acting on the script. People are still being saved. No sacrifices are being offered at the, at the altar. There's no blood being taken into the most holy place. There's no day of atonement being worked out through the a goat and this and that. But Pete, Daniel and his three friends are still being saved. It's all theater. Theater. Because their hearts weren't right enough to be able to demonstrate the teachings that he made here. And so David, they were bringing the ark. They were not having respect for the, what the theater was going to teach. They had a script that only the priests would carry the ark. They've got it on a goat, uh, an, a, a cart being drawn by ox, oxen. David isn't respecting it. So what does God do? He, Uzzah, and we don't know the heart of Uzzah. That's right. This is a, such a projection. God punished him because he was wicked. The ark starts to toddle on the thing. Uzzah may or may not have known the prescriptions against it. We don't know. We can ask him it one day. But another, since we're going to project stuff on it, because we don't know, we only know he touched it, and he went to sleep. We don't know what resurrection he's coming up. We don't know that his heart wasn't, Lord, I trust you, and I know David doesn't understand these things, and he's still struggling to, get, to be reborn. He hasn't written Psalms 51 yet. He hasn't been converted yet. He's still got selfishness. You know, one day he's going to murder somebody and steal their wife. I mean, that's kind of evil still in David's heart. Uh, he needs he needs some, some evidence, Lord, to, to bring him to conversion and conviction. You know what? I love you enough. I'm willing to give my life right now to help that person. Paul wrote in the New Testament, I'd give my life gladly that my fellow Jews might be saved. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but Lord, use me right now to give a lesson. Boom. How do we know his heart wasn't like that? It's all projection and presumption. The whole Old Testament was there. It was history. How many millions of Jews lived in the Old Testament? How many lives do we have recorded? Do you think it's accidental that a, a very small, probably less than 1% of 1% of the people who lived in Old Testament times, we have the history of their lives on. Do you think the Holy Spirit directed and randomly to pick these individuals to tell their stories? Or were these individuals' stories told because they were part of telling a larger story of a great controversy? What do we believe? All of human history is a theater. It's the New Testament. First, first Corinthians 4, 9. We are a theater, spectacle angels and men. So I'm going to suggest to you, if you look at... Um, some theater was more direct, the whole Old Testament sanctuary. That was all theater. But most of the nation of Israel was also acting out theater. If you look at the Old Testament, there were seven miracle births. Seven miracle births. Not virgin births. Women who had fertility problems, physical health problems, a miraculous healing happened, so their reproductive organs began working normally again. And there were seven of them. And all of them are historically real, and theater, object lessons, teaching the Messiah. So what were the seven? I, I'm, 
Sarah and her child was the child of the promise, the promised one. And that's a metaphor for Jesus. He's the promised one. Um, Rachel, was it, was it Rachel also? Yeah. And it was Joseph, right? And Joseph was a deliverer. Or, or, or What about um, Samuel, the high priest, Samson, the judge, the Shunammite woman? died and rose again. The child dies and rose again. We have all these objects. Oh, and uh, John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, and Jesus, the greatest of all the prophets. So they're all historically real, but they also have larger lessons to teach us if we look. And there's many, many, many things in Scripture like this. When are we saying uh, that it's a dramatization um, and that it's a theater? There's, there could be a misperception of essentially predestination. Of if, if there's theater and there are roles and there are scripts, and if you're due for this script, then that versus it being that people who have real choices and God was not forcing them into a choice that in retrospect, like you're saying, with Uzzah. Because so, later maybe, yes, you know, said me. So the difference, people were not required to be in the drama to be saved. Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, um, Jethro, um, no, no, nope, 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 yes, not, not her. Um, I was thinking of, um, Melchizedek. Many people in Old Testament times saved that never were part of Israel. They never sacrificed. They never played in the drama. Why are you removing Rahab? Because you could join the acting troop, not be a born in member of the troop, but you could say, I want to be part of the troop. Ruth, Rahab, they join. But now once they join, they have to follow the script. Naaman never sacrificed a temple. Rahab had to then obey by all the Judaic laws and everything when she joined. Same could be said for the eunuch that uh, on the road to the, the eunuch that uh, all men. No, because the script is already done away with. There's no more drama. It's now re- living real life. We're not doing theater anymore. No. But I thought the whole world is a theater. In that sense, yes, but not the, the drama of the Old Testament, 12 tribes acting out the whole world. We don't have time to go in there. We've got to move on. There's a whole lecture I have. We're going to get to Tuesday. <laughs> okay, so. Theater. 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 Yes, we're going to just have to truncate this part. I'm going to do a new seminar in the new year on the Old Testament sanctuary, investigative judgment, and we're going to have a new seminar we're going to do with a new DVD set that will actually expand this in great detail. So, this idea, though, of imperialism and imposed law and punishment, this is, this is pagan. The true view is what Jesus was trying to teach in Matthew 5. Not one jot or one tittle of the law will be changed. Why? What would happen if one jot or one tittle of the law was changed? So, this is uh, out of the remedy version. And don't think I've come to destroy the Old Testament, Torah and prophets, what, what the Torah and prophets taught about God and his methods, I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. Here is the simple truth. Heaven and earth would disappear if the slightest change were made to God's design protocols for life, what you call his law. I am not here to destroy the law, but accomplish everything it requires. If you understand the design law, all of God's laws are protocols upon which life are built. If you change them, life as we know it doesn't exist anymore. Not one jot or tittle, not one protocol of God's laws are going to be changed. This is out of the book Finding Truth by Nancy Piercy, page 25. The fundamental physical constants of the universe are exquisitely balanced, as though on a knife's edge, to sustain life. 
Things like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of mass of a proton to an electron, and many other factors have just the right value needed to make life possible. If any of these critical numbers were changed, even the slightest, the universe could not sustain any form of life. For example, if the strength of gravity were smaller or larger than its current value by only one part in 10 to the 60th. That's a 10 with 60 zeros behind it. That's, that's, that's 1 to 10 to the 60th. The universe would be uninhabitable. God's moral laws, so everybody gets it. You, get, you see how these laws are constant. You cannot change God's laws and have life con- continue. What about the moral laws? Now, people who oppose us will say, that's true about his physical laws, the laws of physics, the laws of health. But when it comes to the moral laws, not so. Let me read to you a couple of quotes from one of the founders of the Adventist Church. First is out of Desire of Ages, page 19. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find on the, in the cross of Christ their science and their song. Science and song. Science, your rational understanding about how the universe works and God's design for it. Song, your heart's response to joy and love for what God has done for you. Both are the same. Both are true. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Christ is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light of Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. This is um, Desire of Ages, page 21, two pages later. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. This is moral. This is a moral law. It's the law of life. That's why it says in Proverbs 21, 21, he who pursues righteousness and love finds life. It's the law of life. All things Christ received from the Father, um, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the, the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love, to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete circuit, circle, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. And then one more, it's out of education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. Notice what controls? The same great laws. What laws control the stars and the atom? kinds of laws. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. Okay, what kind of laws have jurisdiction of the soul? Those are the moral laws. They're just like these other laws. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God. A life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. What kind of law? This idea that that God's law functions like human law 
is the system of the world that when to have our minds renewed, according to Romans 12, 2, our, our memory verse for today, we must reject the systems of the world and the ways of the world. But you will, if you really, really embrace it in your heart, really begin living it, not only be transformed, you'll start telling people. And as you start telling people, you're going to run into walls of opposition. You're going to run into those people in various leadership positions and organized churches that will absolutely call you heretical. Will want to bar you and watch the methods they use. They won't use the methods of God, which are truth presented in love, leaving people free. They will use the power of their authority, their institutions, to coerce you, to to threaten your membership, to deny you speaking opportunities, to take away privileges. And then wasn't that what Jesus was trying to demonstrate too in his life? Because the um, Pharisees thought they had it all together, every jot, every tittle, and he was going around undermining that, saying, well, didn't David go into the temple and eat the bread? <laughs> he, went only, he wasn't supposed to eat that, but he, he said that was necessary under those circumstances and not harmful. And he was undermining everything they believed because they interpreted it. Because they interpret rules rather than design protocols for life. When David got the showbread... This was design law. Two laws were being in harm, harmonized with. One, the laws of health, giving his men food that they needed. And two, the law of love. He cared for his men. He was sacrificing for his men. They would be, let's keep the rules. Rules say no. The men can starve. We must keep the rules. We don't care about the health of the men. We care about keeping the rules. This is exactly the problem you get when you have a legal religion So how do we overcome evil with good? We have to first come back to understand what good is. God is good. His designs are good. The way he's built things, that's actually good. And then we love that. And we ask the Holy Spirit to come in and take what Christ has given. And we get new motives and we want to live in harmony. We choose to apply. So why is faith not a substitute for obedience? Well, it would be like this. You have a serious sickness, but you have a doctor that you trust and have faith in. He's a good doctor. You have faith in him. And he told you he has a medicine that will cure you and you, and you believe it. You have faith that the medicine will help. And you trust him and you want his help and you believe in him, but you won't take them. You just go home and you don't, don't take the medicine. Put it on the shelf, you don't take it. You have faith. You believe. But there's no obedience. There's no application. Does your faith, without your works, do you any good? No. But if you do work and you follow the instructions, you apply, have you produced the remedy that's curing you? Have your works created the, the treatment? No, you're not curing yourself. That was given to you by your doctor. But you still have to partake of it. You still have to apply it. What does it mean with this statement? We are not cast off or cast away, but we have a high priest who intercedes in our behalf. What does this mean, intercedes in our behalf? With whom is the high priest interceding? What law lens are you looking through? We have the human law lens. What does it mean? We have Jesus as a legal advocate pleading his legal payment to the Father to protect us from the heavenly judge. Have you ever heard it presented this way? That's paganism. Name it for what it is. It's paganism. It's not biblical. Design law. God intercedes in three places. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis chapter 3, God speaking to the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman is a metaphor for the church or the, or the children of, of Adam and Eve. And, and so he's going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. What does that mean? He's going to intercede in the hearts of human beings. 
to break up the natural affinity that selfishness would have merged with sinful human beings and sinful angels, we would have been in harmony except God's grace and spirit working in our heart to put a desire for good. This is how every culture understands. This is why every culture, exactly. It's evidence of God's intercessions in our hearts, number one. Number two, he intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. Holding back the four winds of strife, Elisha and the angel armies holding back evil forces. He, in Job chapter 1, he limits and holds back Satan and his power. He intercedes there. And three, through Jesus Christ, who became incarnate, he interceded in the natural course of what sin does to a human being. And the natural course of sin in a human being is death. And Christ became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might not become death, we might become the righteousness of of God. He interceded in the trajectory and offered a new pathway, open to all. Then what do we do with statements like this one? Because those who prefer the other view will throw these at you. Some of our young students at the college will have stuff like this thrown at them. This comes from Review and Herald, March 6, 1886. In the sacrificial offering... On every altar was seen a redeemer. With the cloud of incense arose from every contrite heart the prayer that God would accept their offering as showing faith in the coming Savior. Our Savior has come and shed his blood as a sacrifice, and now he pleads that blood before the Father in the sanctuary in heaven. It is now as anciently only through the merits of that blood that the transgressors of God's law can find pardon. What does that sound like? This, is, this stuff is thrown out there. As if it's legal, as if he's up there pleading his blood to the Father, as if the Father needs the blood pled. If you don't plead the payment of the blood, then you can't be pardoned. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It's not that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. So how would you answer those statements? First, would you ask this question? If the Holy Spirit enlightened the person who wrote this, would this disagree with Jesus Christ or agree with Jesus Christ? If the Holy Spirit enlightened the person, which I believe the Holy Spirit enlightened the person who wrote this, so let me say that. I believe the Holy Spirit enlightened them. So will this have to agree with Jesus or will it disagree with Jesus? Agreed. It will agree with Jesus. So let's, let's check Jesus. John 16, 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father loves you himself. So Jesus said he's not going to pray the Father for us. So can this statement disagree with Jesus? So it can't mean that he's pleading the Father. can't mean that. It has to mean something else. Are there more texts that would support Jesus' statement? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. If he's giving a Son for the world, does he really need to be pled with to give a Son? It doesn't make sense at all. So there's much scripture that's consistent. This idea, this traditional interpretation is all based on human law, and it's wrong. So God, Jesus is not pleading to the Father. Let me ask you this way. Does the Father need some convincing in order to save us? Who needs convincing to allow themselves to be saved? With that question alone, can you now understand the meaning? Or do we need some more? More? So Jesus said, John 16, 12 through 14, I have much more to say to you, but you can't now bear it. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now notice this, it's very critical. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us, is he speaking his own? 
or he's speaking what who do you think the Holy Spirit's listening to? Well, next verse, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Does that give us a clue who he's listening to? Who's he listening to? See, do we believe that Jesus, when he became incarnate, gave up his omnipresence? He actually is still in physical human form. For all eternity, he remains in human form. Therefore, if Jesus is going to communicate to all peoples, he has to have somebody help him because he chose to give up that ability. And the Holy Spirit now is Christ's representative on earth. So the Holy Spirit listens to the pleas of Christ and communicates those pleas to who? So before the Father, Jesus is in heaven because Christ is carrying out the Father's purposes. And what are the Father's purposes? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, it's the Father's purpose. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. It was the Father's purpose to send Christ to be our Savior, to heal and save us. And before the Father, carrying out his purposes in heaven, Christ is pleading, and the Holy Spirit hears those pleads and stands at the door of your heart knocking. Will you let me in? Don't you know I love you? I die for you. I'll heal you if you trust me. I'm not that person you need to be afraid of. He's pleading to you and to me. This is what it actually means. So yes, he's before the Father pleading. And only the power of his blood, his self-sacrificing love, his perfect life, refutes the lies of Satan and wins you to trust. That's why it says in Hebrews 2.14, that by his death he destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. By his death he destroys him. The devil's power. What's his power? Life eternal. You might know the only true God and Jesus that Christ now sent. That's, that's eternal life is knowing God. So the devil's the power of death. The power of death the lies that he tells about God that keep us from knowing him. And so Jesus' blood is the truth, the truth of his life, the righteous life. And, and the Holy Spirit communicates it to us, and we're one to trust. We're being pled with. I think one of the things that turned my thinking around was, you know, we generally think of Jesus before God pleading, my blood, my blood. But instead of Jesus in front of God, the Bible says he's at God's right hand. And I now see it more that God is pleading with the Father for you, not with the Father. You got along with, you mean to say? Along with. Yeah, along with. And that's, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, Romans chapter 831. If God is for you, who can be against you? He did not spare us, but gave him up. How we along with him, not give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Is it Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us, also in addition to the Father. <laughs> so there, yeah, exactly right. Um. But let's give another Bible evidence. This is a really cool one. This is Zechariah chapter 3, 1 through 5. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. What are the filthy clothes symbolic of? It's in our lives. As he stood before the angel, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I put rich garments on you. What does this mean? Notice who's accusing. To who do you think Satan is making accusations? The traditional false legal view? He's in heaven as a prosecuting attorney, bringing up all your sins before God. And God would really be confused. He really wouldn't know 
if it wasn't for Jesus. And so Jesus is your defense attorney. He pleads, my blood, my father. And Father looks at Jesus and says, thank you, son. I was about to kill that person, but you've reminded me that you've paid his penalty. Thank, I, would, I would have forgotten that. I, I appreciate you uh, defending that guy for me. Do we really believe this silliness? This is what it's presented. It's, it's corrupt. Does God get confused over Satan's arguments and accusations against us? Does it, does it, no, in fact, you, you see it in a couple places. One, in Zechariah. Another place, when, when Michael goes to resurrect Jude, uh, I mean, in Jude, Michael goes to resurrect, resurrect uh, Moses. In both places, the same language is, the Lord rebuke you. It means, talk to the hand, we're not listening. We don't listen. You're a liar. And the father of lies. You don't speak truth. We are the sources of truth. Only truth works here. Lies have no power here. So when Satan tells his accusations and allegations, God doesn't get disturbed by that. Who is the one, who are the ones that get discouraged by Satan's accusations? Who are the ones who become guilt-ridden, overcome with shame, who think they're beyond salvation, who they're beyond healing, who think they're too sinful, that what they've done is so awful that God couldn't love them, that what they've done is beyond salvation, that Jesus might love others, but they couldn't love them anymore. Who do you think Satan is accusing? Exactly. Then who do you think Jesus is pleading to? Who's he defending? Where is his, 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 his pleas of defense being needed to be heard in, in the year of the Father? No. This is what he's saying in Zechariah. I have taken away your sin. And the sad thing is that in heaven, the same thing happened. Uh, Ellen White says that Satan was too far to come back, but he convinced the angels. Some of the angels said, hey, I see this is going in the wrong direction. I don't really want to go there. And he told them, it's too late for you. Yep. But it wasn't. Too yep, late. you're exactly right. It was too late for him. Oh, and I've got several things we still need to get to. I'm going to go fast now. I'm going to go fast now. All right, lift him up, page 234. Continue on the same thought. Because I really want to hammer this point home. Um, through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. All the hatred and malignity of the arch rebel stirred as he beholds the evidence of Christ's supremacy and with fiendish power and cunning, he works to wrest from him the remnant of the children of men who have accepted his salvation. He leads men into skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and to separate from his love. He tempts them to break his law and then he claims them as captives. Therefore, he presents their sins before them. To discourage them. He constantly seeks occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable service, he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and the most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. Their condemnation from whom? Who does he want to get the sinner to, to condemn the sinner? So. Themselves, that's right. Man cannot meet these charges himself. He, he, in his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. Again, who is the devil pleading to discourage? And who then is Christ pleading the cause of Calvary to encourage? That's the pleading, guys. It's never to the Father. 
To the accuser, continuing on the quote, to the accuser of the people, he declares, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning. Those who rely upon him in faith receive the comforting assurance. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments found not upon our merits, but upon his own. When you trust Jesus, he pleads in your heart, I died for you. I love you. I'm the remedy for you. Trust me. The the past, the historical mistakes of the past, they're not what matters. What matters is if you've let me in and given you a new heart and right spirit, changing your heart, what matters. And I'm here to do that for you. All right, I'm going to move on. We're going to go to Tuesday's lesson. What is a healthy attitude toward Christians to have in relationship to the state? The lesson describes how Paul, in his day, with a Roman government who was corrupt with abuse, uh, human rights abuses, intolerance, pagan worshipers, slavery that was part of the state, and, and so forth and so forth, yet despite all the corruption of the government, Paul advocated that Christians should be good citizens and obey the government. And then it asks, you know, um, oh, then, it, then it goes on to say in the second paragraph, yes, and that's because the idea of government is set found throughout the Bible. The concept, the principle of government is God-ordained. Human beings need to live in a community with rules and regulations and standards. Anarchy is not a Bible concept. Question. While the principle of government is God-ordained, does that mean the method of human government is God-ordained? They don't make that distinction here. Because they don't see a distinction between the method of human government and the method of God's government. Both impose rules. Other than God never makes a bad judgment. He never convicts somebody who hasn't, who doesn't deserve conviction. And he never gives more punishment than that person deserves. So we can always rest assured that the punishment you get from God is exactly what you deserve. Unlike human governments where we're finite in their, in their knowledge, we can make mistakes in our judgment. But the method of judgment and the method of punishment is the same to many people. And it's a lie. Well, I mean, you need to even make distinction between the principle of government. The principle of God-ordained government is self-governance. Thank you. It's not other governance. It's self-governance. The last fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-governance, that we are restored to be self-governing. So Jesus said, in fact, this is what Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would rise up and free. Fight. Notice. He made, he made a clear, for those who think functionally and evidence-based, my kingdom is not of this world. Why? Because if it were of the world, then my followers would do what the world does. And what does the world do? They fight. They coerce. They use might of arms. They use power. But yet, the whole Christian world teaches, well, that really is God's way. He's coming back with a, with a rod of iron. He's going to punish the Whitaker. He's going to use might and force to get his way. That's what the whole world teaches. It's a lie. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, where God establishes his all government, we can't oppose the government because all government authority is established by God. What does that mean? So, does that mean that all kings are chosen by God? I was just going to say, he didn't want a king. All the kings of Israel, were they all chosen by God? No. No. Was the system of kings chosen by God? No. No. So, does that apply to the... Did God choose the form of government Israel ended up with? Or did they choose it despite repeated warnings against it? This is not what I want for your government. But since you insist on it, okay. 
You have to balance that, don't you? We have clear, this is evidence-based, that's declaratives. So there's two types of thinking when you approach scripture. Declaratives, when something is declared to be, and evidence of what actually happens. So that's a declarative, and then what actually happened with Israel is evidence of what happened, and what God actually wanted acted out in, and this is why we have the history, to show evidentiary how God's methods work versus the methods that are not God's. But I want to read this to you. Maranatha, page 79. But in heaven, the service is not rendered, excuse me, but in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. Obedience to them is no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy. So in every soul wherein Christ, the hope of glory dwells, his words are re-echoed. I delight to do thy will, O my God, and thy laws within my heart. What do you think of this idea that before sin, in heaven, the idea that God has laws was something unthought of? If you believe that to be true, and you can reject it, you say, I don't believe it. But if you believe that to be true, there are unavoidable consequences to that truth. Mm-hmm. And I want you to, to do the thinking and reason it out. What would it mean if this is true? Well, let me give you an example. Isaac Newton eventually discovers the law of gravity. And he writes it down. The law of gravity. And what do you think would happen if we went to people in this community? Here's the law of gravity. There is a law of gravity. Do you think that people might have said, there's a law of gravity? That's, I've never thought of that. That's completely unthought of. I didn't know there was a law of gravity I had to obey. I just know that's how life works. It's a law, really? It's never thought of that. Can you see how that would have happened? That's what it means. This is prima facie evidence that the way God's law works is design law and always has been. They never had to think of it because that's just how reality works. It's true that the law is there, just like the law of gravity was there for centuries or millennia, and and nobody ever thought of it. But it was still there. And, and by the way, such statements prove that, that God's laws are not a system of rules. It proves it. You see, imagine somebody playing an actual game of baseball on a baseball diamond. And they say, you mean there's actually rules of baseball? We, we never actually thought there were rules. We, we didn't know that it was three strikes. We thought one, two. In fact, we bought, in fact how do we even define all? In fact, 90 feet. Or, you, you see, the whole thing is based on imposed artificial rules. And you can't even play the game unless you know the rules. Same thing with your taxes. When you get the bill in the mail for your your property taxes, you don't go, tax laws, something I never even thought of. It never occurred to me. No, you would have never paid property taxes if someone didn't communicate that to you. There could be no obedience of any kind with an imposed law unless the imposed law were communicated. The fact that they didn't think of it and didn't know is proof that this imperial imposed law construct, these people who hold that God's moral law is imposed, that he runs, it's a lie, it's paganism. We must reject it. Get it out of our hearts, get it out of our minds, get it out of our churches, get it out of our quarterlies, get it out of our institutions. Because we can't finish the work of preparing the world for Christ to come as long as we still go out and teach the world that he operates like Rome. Gracious Father in heaven, We are so thankful 
that you are the creator God who is love and that your law, the principles of love upon which all the universe is constructed. We are so thankful that you never change and your laws never change. They're constants. And built into those laws are, are the happiness and health of all your creation. Lord, we, have, we were born out of harmony. We have lived out of harmony. We seek harmony with you, Lord. We ask that your spirit will come and take the perfection of Christ, re- reproduce it in us, enlighten our mind, show us how to live in harmony, that we might know and approve of your methods and principles and your perfect will. We pray in your holy name. Amen.